Welcome to The 12th Story, a podcast from the Mercantile Library where readers gather to connect, debate, and discuss. The literary center of Cincinnati, The Mercantile, is a 183-year-old working library with more than 80,000 books available to members. The library organizes book discussion groups and writing workshops and welcomes thousands every year to its author talks, lectures, and other civic events. Harriet Beecher Stowe and Herman Melville, Colson Whitehead and Zadie Smith all have spoken at Mercantile events. Located at 414 Walnut Street in downtown Cincinnati, we always welcome new members and guests. You belong here. I'm Hillary Copsey, book advisor at the Mercantile. 2020 marks the 100th anniversary of the adoption of the 19th Amendment, guaranteeing and protecting women's constitutional right to vote. The centennial gives us a chance to both commemorate a milestone of democracy and to consider its relevance to the issues of equal rights today. One way we're doing that here at the library is by producing the Genius of Liberty podcast. Created, written, and voiced by independent scholar Catherine Dirac, the Genius of Liberty podcast tells the stories of the women and men who fought for women's rights. Each six-minute suffrage story paints a vivid picture of these women and men and their lives and beliefs and the actions they took to change America. Catherine is joining us today to tell us more about how she found these stories and why they still matter today. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. So I thought we'd start with how this idea came about to begin with. Where did the idea for the Genius of Liberty come from? So after my husband uh, retired and I left the faculty at Miami University, I was looking around for something to do. I knew I I couldn't just... uh, sit at home with my knitting, so to speak. And I discovered that my academic research had always been historical. And one day, when I was researching the history of old crochet and knitting instructions, I realized that the time frame during which crochet instructions evolved to the state we recognize today overlapped with the woman's suffrage movement. So I did what any normal human being would do. (laughs) I googled suffrage and crochet and discovered some really, really interesting connections between the woman's suffrage movement and um, needle arts. This is how my project Suffrage and Stitches was born. Uh, I launched that probably in 2015. And I started doing research. These are stories that are largely forgotten. They're not a part of our education, not a large part of our education. There's not a lot of books written about the suffragists. They feel like footnotes in some ways, right? A sentence, a paragraph, a footnote. That's what we get about the suffrage movement. How many books have been written about the Civil War? Just a few years. How many books about have been written about the suffrage movement? 72 years, at least, Mm -hmm. in fighting for women's rights. So uh, I started doing research and telling stories through original crochet patterns inspired by the women events and artifacts of the US women's suffrage movement. And as I was doing that research, it was like all roads kept leading to Ohio. I kept finding fascinating- As they often do. <laughs> absolutely, right? You know, you, you gotta go through Ohio. Um, and I kept finding these fascinating stories and so, uh, I, I, swear, I guess my husband would probably say I became obsessed with the idea of, of telling these stories. The other thing that happened is I was astonished by how relevant the words and the actions of the suffragists 100 years ago 
uh, are to today. So, so you've got these stories and you found these women. I keep getting an image of Madame Defarge, by the way, um, <laughs> with the knitting through the revolution, right, in Tale of Two Cities. But um, you've got these stories of women that you think are worth telling. Absolutely. Uh, and you're finding connections to Ohio. Um, you start telling them through different means. Yes. Why do a full podcast? I mean, we've got eight episodes already released on Genius of Liberty, and you've got dozens more left to tell. Absolutely. Um, so why a podcast? So um, as a writer, as a writer who did lots of long academic work for many years, uh, I actually find particular pleasure in boiling down 30 pages in eight-point type of research notes into five to 600 words. Certainly a challenge. Yeah. Well, it's, a f it's incredibly personal rewarding when I'm able to find a story, uh, something that has a connection to today, and tell that story even though I know most readers, are not, listeners, are not going to know the backstory. And to be able to tell in, in six minutes, you know, enough of time to walk out your office and go get a cup of coffee and walk back, to tell those stories and, and catch, catch the opportunity to take just a moment to learn a bit, little bit about things. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. I mean, I, honestly, I... Just this morning, I was looking through my podcast list, and there was one I really wanted to listen to. It's 49 minutes. I'm going to have to break that up over multiple commutes. So I appreciate that I can listen to these six-minute suffrage stories and the time it takes me to walk from my car. Um, I'm curious. I guess we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. We've talked about this as the Genius of Liberty podcast. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about that name. Where does that come from? So uh, listeners may have heard of The Lily, which was the very first a feminist publication in the United States. The Genius was the second. And The Genius of Liberty was published here in Cincinnati by Elizabeth A. Aldrich. This is one of those amazing Ohio connections that's basically been forgotten. And so in searching for a name for the podcast series, it seemed the perfect thing to do to, to give some credit to Elizabeth A. Aldrich for her courage in launching uh, a national publication, The Genius yeah. of Liberty. And another thing that I wanted to make sure to point out, this makes, so the Mercantile Library was founded in 1835, and it's always been a place where thinkers gathered. Um, we had ties, certainly, to the abolitionist movement. Harry Beecher Stowe spoke here. Uh, her family spoke here. You, when we talked first about this project, you pointed out that we also had ties to the uh, suffrage movement. Can Absolutely. Can you speak a little more about that? Absolutely. So, uh, the funny thing about the story, so I came across in researching these stories uh, in an old history of the Mercantile Library, uh, something written by a member claiming to, that the Mercantile Library was among the first organizations west of the Alleghenies to support women's rights. And uh, he gave, the author gave as his evidence um, Harriet Beecher Stowe's lecture and the uh, lecture by the first woman who spoke her. Her name escapes me at the moment. What I, I wanted to know more. Uh, that to me wasn't quite enough. So I started looking back, and it turns out that Henry Brown Blackwell, Lucy Stone, suffragist Lucy Stone's husband and the co-founder of the Woman's Journal, 
uh, one of the most important suffrage publications. He was a member here at the Merck in the very, very early days. Some of the attorneys who uh, were, who were members of the Merck and who I believe had offices in the law school when the law school and the mercantile library right. shared the same quarters, mm -hmm. um, they were writing on women's rights before 1848 in Seneca Falls. In 1845, um, a lawyer here in Cincinnati, one of the founders of the UC Law School, he wrote what became the primary reference for interpreting common law in the United States, and he addressed critically the status of married women. This is the work that suffragists, in writing the history of woman suffrage later on, they remembered referring to in order to understand their status. So this is really foundational work that's happening right here in Cincinnati. Absolutely. In rooms, right next to the rooms that the Mercantile Library is absolutely, and, absolutely and operating out of. Yeah, and so we know it's suggested by the evidence. Um, I think I know. Uh, I'm, I'm confident that here in the law school, people were talking about women's rights uh, from a variety of perspectives prior to Seneca Falls um, and, and continuing in those early days here in Cincinnati. So uh, I, I remember being really fascinated by that story when you told it to me the first time. And, and really just every time we talk about the genius of liberty stories, when I read your work, I'm always like, oh my gosh, I had no idea what I find really interesting about this podcast and the stories that you're telling is all of the major characters that I know about from the suffrage movement, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, they, they make cameos in your stories. Uh, yes. But, right, but they're not, the, not, they're not the central figures. They're not often the people that you're actually talking about. You shared a little bit about how you find these stories, but how do you narrow them down? So the... What typically happens is I get a lead. So, for example, right now I'm on the hunt for stories uh, having to do with Toledo, Ohio. And I have clues. Why I'm, Toledo? Because I want the genius to be about all of Ohio. And I know that Toledo, uh, I have a, a citation, of a, a sentence from a national suffrage publication that says Toledo was the home of the oldest suffrage organization in Ohio. So what I think is that means Toledo was the home of the oldest continuously operational suffrage association in Ohio because I know there were activities here in Cincinnati prior to 1869. Um, Toledo's organization was founded in 1869. I'm afraid I go and wallow in as much detail as I can find and I search for a focus. What typically happens is I think I know what I'm writing about, and the story ends up being some, something different. The perfect example of that is I had read an article actually by Ruth Bader Ginsburg about way pavers, and one of her way pavers was an Ohio suffragist, Florence, uh, Allen, no, Florence Allen, who became the first Oh, she's the first, she's one of many firsts, but she's basically the first uh, jurist judge seriously considered for the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, haven't written about Florence yet. But the story is coming. But the story is coming, yes. The story is coming. But I came across the name of another woman uh, that, that 
Ruth Bader Ginsburg had written about, Bernita Shelton Matthews. Bernita Shelton Matthews has a funny connection to Ohio. So I thought this story was going to be about Bernita, a particular story that's actually out on Genius of Liberty now, was going to be about Bernita Shelton Matthews because, glory be, she has a Cincinnati connection. <laughs> her father didn't want her to go to law school. He said, I'll pay for you to learn to be a piano teacher. Where did he send her? To Cincinnati to go to school at CCM. She learned to be a piano teacher and then went back to the the East Coast, where she became an attorney and became involved with the suffrage movement. I thought I was going to write that story. In researching that, I came across her work uh, defending the National Woman's Party in its eminent domain case against the taking of its headquarters by the federal government to build the Supreme Court. And if you want to hear more about it, you have to listen to Equal Justice Under Law, one of the podcasts that's currently out on Genius. That's really fascinating how you're sort of chasing down these sentences and tracking down stories. Mm -hmm. uh, must take a, quite a bit of time to, to distill these, these stories down into what you're doing, finding them and then also distilling them. The finding them is tremendous fun. The distilling takes two forms. Uh, in some cases, in, in some of the stories, I find a speech or an article written by one of these amazing women, and I really just try to edit it down and provide a little context. Those are fast, once I find the, once I find the material. The stories that take longer are the ones where I have to paint a little context, and then I have to really, really choose a moment. Uh, for example, shorthand for suffrage, there's much I could say about Margaret V. Longley, about how after she and her husband Elias Longley left Cincinnati, they went to California where she became a leader in the women's movement in California, and how she lived long enough to see California pass e equal voting rights for women in 1911. I could talk about how Margaret V. Longley and her husband Elias had their offices, their phonographic offices, directly across the street from the Mercantile Library and were close collaborators with Ben Pittman who had his offices in the same building as the Merck. Mm -hmm. But I really thought, Margaret's work in opening clerical jobs, office work for women, which paid better than needle arts, still half to a third of what men were paid, but white collar work to women, that that was what would be most accessible, fun, and interesting to current day listeners. And that's a great story to, to talk about because in addition to the fact that there are ties to Cincinnati and the Mercantile, you also have a woman who is lifting other women, giving them opportunities to lift themselves out of dependence and in some cases poverty and giving them brighter futures. And then she's also, my favorite part of that story is her typing manuals, the training manuals with her little subversive um, phrases that she expected her students to type. Yes, as they learned to, to, to strike the keys with their fingers, they had lovely little, you know, votes for women phrasings to yeah. practice. Um, it's, it, it's just a delightful moment. In, and it, it shows how the fight for women's rights permeated every aspect of many of these women's lives. Well, and for me as a listener, someone who hasn't done all the research you've had, it also paints for me a very uh, vivid picture of this woman 
as a woman, some of mm-hmm. uh, a person, somebody that I would sit on my porch and talk with and complain about, you know, someone who had done something to me that I didn't like and how I'm going to get them this way. You know, I just, I see her as a person in that moment um, in a way that you don't always get in history books. And that's one of the things that I really appreciate about this podcast series. Um, the other thing about Margaret, of course, and, and again, if you want the full scoop, you have to listen to the six-minute suffrage story. Uh, but I'll just, I'll just drop the hint that some of Margaret's teaching techniques uh, are with us today. When you learn how to keyboard, you're probably learning something that Margaret invented. And we had no idea, or at least I had no idea that, about that until I listened. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about some of the misconceptions people might have about the suffrage movement. I grew up reading about Susan B. Anthony. Um, that that's pretty much it. What what things do you do you find that people don't understand or maybe misunderstand about the suffrage movement? I think so. The suffrage movement is permeated with our country's original sin, racism. I think one of the common beliefs that I wanted to complicate is the belief that all of these first wave feminists were racist. It is absolutely true that many of the women were racist, particularly as we move towards 1920. But if you look at the beginning, those pioneers of women's suffrage, Susan B., including Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, uh, Lucretia Mott, Lucy Stone, those women started in abolition. And in fact, it was because they were shut down when they tried to speak publicly against slavery that they realized their position as women. And that became a second front uh, on which they chose to do battle. That's probably the most important misconception. I think the other thing that I hope that people start to appreciate is how many women fought for this, how, how, how generations, literally generations of women fought for our right to vote in this country. And most of the pioneers never saw that victory. So understanding it as a long, arduous, and discouraging fight in which women did finally prevail is, is important. Thinking about that long, arduous fight, um, what parallels do you see in, the, in these stories and in that fight to today's political atmosphere and the, the fights that we're, and, and discussions we're having today around equal rights? Well, I, you mentioned equal rights. I think the first thing that I would say is most people don't know that the Equal Rights Amendment was written by Alice Paul immediately after women got the right to vote in 1920, and the Western campaign was uh, launched in the early 20s. So the, equal, the fight for the Equal Rights Amendment has been going on much longer than the fight for women's suffrage. And I think anybody who who's old enough to have participated in the early, early days, I'm talking about the 1970s now, 50 years after it was first introduced, anybody who was fighting for it then has some appreciation of the difficulty it is to change views toward women in our society. 
Um, are there other are other parallels or other more specific ways where you're reading a story and you think, oh, that's that's a headline from today? Or I mean, maybe there's not. But actually, no, no, no. Actually, there's there's a, there's quite a few. Um, for example, one of the stories we recently released is called Fake News, and it is about the way new tech, new communication technologies disrupt disrupted expectations of behavior. And that story is about how, with the introduction of the telegraph, a, uh, an Ohio activist's words uh, in support of women's rights were uh, willfully misrepresented by telegraph editors. And then, to much to his dismay, they rocketed across the country. This is a lot like the way misinformation gets distributed and propagates today on the internet through social media. Um, the words that uh, Lucius Alonzo Hine spoke in dismay in the 1850s are as relevant today, just as relevant today. Um, the suffragists were concerned with separation of church and state. Uh, that's, there, there's a little known connection between the Wizard of Oz and woman's suffrage. Matilda Jocelyn Gage, the mother-in-law of L. Frank Baum, who, by the way, encouraged him to write those stories, yes. um, wrote about woman, church, and state. And what she's doing there is looking at how structures of faith are used to propagate inequality. And, I mean, just today I was reading a story about voting rights and... Uh, activity to prevent voter suppression in the next election. Certainly, voting rights is still something we're talking about, too. It's a, um, it's a misconception to believe, and, and actually it is, believing that right after 1920, that women had the right to vote in this country, like a light switch, yeah. is simply wrong, because all of the impediments that had been put in place to discourage black male voting after the 15th Amendment. Literacy tests, all of those sorts of things. Those affected uh, black women as well. Additionally, uh, Native American citizens, uh, Chinese American citizens, there have been over time uh, restrictions on, on suffrage for lots of different categories of, of citizens. And uh, barriers put in place because people who have power often do not like to share power. Mm -hmm. We've talked about several of the um, Genius of Liberty episodes. Mm -hmm. is, do you have a favorite out of the ones that, that you're working on? My right. favorite is always the one I'm working on right now uh, or the next one around the corner. I, I'm fascinated with Toledo's story right now. Um, there's material for Akron, there's material for Salem. Uh, I can't get to them quickly enough. And what is it that you hope people take away? If they're listening to one or they're listening to every episode we put out, what is it you hope that they take away from the Genius of Liberty? There are two things, I think. Uh, the first is that these are stories by and about all of us. If we sit down for a moment and think about what democracy means to us and set aside teams. These are stories that I've discovered as I've given programs resonate with all kinds of peoples. These are, these are foundational, inspirational stories about our democracy and what keeps a democracy healthy. A second thing is an appreciation of the tenacity and persistence 
of literally millions of women who fought for generations for our right to vote. Sometimes when I start a program, I'll ask, how many of you can name at least five presidents? Most hands in the room go up. When I ask, how many of you can name at least five suffragists? Almost nobody can. I want to end a little uh, with kind of a plug for things coming forward. You and I met at a planning meeting we for um, suffrage centennial events around Cincinnati. Um, can you speak a little bit to that effort? I mean, things that people might be on the lookout for. Certainly, we have the Genius of Liberty podcast. They can learn some history here. What other things can they be doing here in Cincinnati over the next year um, to think about this issue and the importance of the passing of the 19th Amendment? There's recently been a state commission uh, created by uh, created here in Ohio, and I understand the commission will be releasing a website very soon that will include a calendar of events across the state. In the meantime, I would strongly recommend that people check out The Power of Her and the websites for uh, their favorite educational and cultural organizations here in the city. I know the Merck has got some special plans coming up. And uh, the Cincinnati Museum Center, Cincinnati Public Library, the Art Museum. Uh, oh my gosh, the list just goes on and on. Yeah. So it seems like every major organization in the city has something planned. Indeed, next year. and that's just here in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that. Uh, you can find The Genius of Liberty and subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud. We have eight episodes out already, and we have many more set to be released over the next year. Thank you so much for joining us today, Catherine. We very much appreciate it and your work on these stories. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Um, thank you all for joining us today on The 12th Story. And to make sure you catch every episode, please subscribe through iTunes or SoundCloud. Your good words are better than any advertisement. If you like what you heard, please tell your friends or tweet to us at Mercantile LIB. Today's podcast was directed and engineered by Chris Messick. Special thanks to our guest, Catherine Dirac. Remember to subscribe to the Genius of Liberty podcast to hear all of Catherine's stories of the men and women who changed our country. The 12th Story is a production of the Mercantile Library in downtown Cincinnati. Our theme music was created by Doug McDermott. Don't forget to visit us online at mercantillibrary.com where you can learn about and register for all our upcoming events. You belong here.